Roger that, Houston. Preparing for emergency procedures. Closing hatch vent number one. Copy that. Stand by for next. We're starting to lose you, Houston, but we have begun emergency procedures and will monitor your communication. Uh, we're starting to encounter some debris. You're showing some loss from the vent. Make sure to secure the to any uh, Copy that. Uh, I think we've officially lost you. Uh, continuing to prepare for breach. Let's go ahead and shut down airlock two. Or we just let it stay open and ride it out. What was that? Leave it open and assume that air from airlock two bypasses it and reestablishes pressure? No, just let it be and quietly pass on together. Just the three of us. Like buddies. Um, what? Now is not the time for jokes, you know that. I'm not joking. We're astronauts. We've already achieved in life. Look at the view down there. It's never going to get better than this. Stop screwing around, Bernie. I am not joking! Are you really in that big of a hurry to get down there and be famous but not make nearly enough money to provide the type of security you need for that level of fame? Now is not the time for one of your little goofs. It's time to what? Scurry like roaches? To hang on to the idea of life so that we can spend the rest of our lives making small amounts of money to appear at graduations and corporate events and give the same rehearsed speeches about the majesty of space for the rest of our lives? There is more to life than money. We have families to get home to, and, and people that love us. Well, we do. Is that all this is? Like, you don't want to live because you don't have a partner at home? You're sad because you don't have anyone to care about you? What are you talking about? I have nine cats! You absolutely do not have nine cats. I've known you since training, and I have never heard you mention a cat. I've never seen you with a single cat hair on any of your clothes. I'm an astronaut. I'm organized. I wouldn't show up anywhere with fur on me. That's disgusting. All right. Well, what are their names? The cats? Yes, the cats. What are their names? One through nine. You named them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine? Yes, it's efficient. I'm an astronaut. That's bullshit. You went through extensive psychological testing. There's no way they would have selected a cadet, a single cadet, mind you, who owned nine cats. That's why I waited until I was in, until I bought them. You kept it from everyone that you wanted to own nine cats. And then, as soon as you became an astronaut, you, a single man, treated yourself to nine cats. Yes. And then you never told any of us about them. Correct. Why? I like cats. All right, then. Describe them. What does each cat look like? Orange and white. They're all from the same litter, so they look mostly the same. Although Six has four white socks and none of the others do. Do cats even have nine kittens in a litter? I can't look it up, so this radiation storm is really working out to your advantage. Of course they do. You're an astronaut and you don't know that? I mostly focus on space and my family, who I desperately want to get home to. Why? So you can become a senior citizen and they always talk about how cool you used to be? I don't want to alarm anyone, and I know you won't care about this, Bernie, but with the time we've wasted talking about this, we might be looking at oxygen levels that might not sustain us until arrival. We need to act. Or we just chill up here and die as heroes. Imagine how badass they'll think we were. Who is going to think that? Your cats? We can scramble around up here just like so much of life is, just scrambling and scrambling to stay alive. Or we can realize we've already lived incredible lives and just coast into the finish. I hate you. You don't hate me. You hate that I'm making you question this. We all have things to leave behind. You guys and your wives and kids. Me, I have my cats. It's tough on everyone. There's nothing heroic about sitting here and waiting for our oxygen to run out. Yeah, and if we do, I'm going to spend my remaining breath and strength choking you to death. Just like me, 
you also had a psychological evaluation, and I know you won't. And for the first time, you said, if we do this. I was just... Just imagine this. You make it down. You've scratched and clawed and fought to do everything in your power to just barely crash down someplace where emergency crews can find you. You spend weeks under medical care, and when you finally get back to full health, you spend your remaining days posing for photos with idiots, working odd jobs, being a talking head on TV shows, shuffling out to wave at the crowd during the seventh-inning stretch of minor league baseball games. Or we die like heroes. And, and how would we do that? I'm glad you've asked. Space will be a destination soon. A tourist destination. And a capsule just orbiting Earth might be a fun thing to check out. Like a ghost town. And inside you can see a real live space crew that died heroically during a mission. But that won't even be true if we do nothing. Who will ever know? Crowds will come by and when they look in, we're posed up, tough as hell, arms crossed, flashing deuces with our fingers. This kind of tough look on our faces. That doesn't look that tough. But you get the idea. Or we go visors down. That's undeniably cool. All right, the visor down is cool. This is insane. It's now or never. If we're going to salvage oxygen, I need your help. I second that. Notice my fingers. I second that. Looks pretty cool. For eternity, who's with me? I cannot believe this. Hello, and welcome to the Space Cave. I'm David Huntsberger, a big warg to all of you Spaceburgers out there, tucked in, safely, in a cave, deep in the nether reaches of the furthest parts of our known universe. Away from all of it, the madness and the chaos, just quietly joined together to enjoy a conversation. And before we get started, uh, just a reminder, uh, my project Big Nothingness is available at uh, YouTube, as well as Vimeo. If you go to davidhuntsberger.com, that's the best way to access either option. Vimeo, you pay to rent it, but there are no ads. YouTube, it's free. I think it's broken up with a few ads here and there. You can choose. I feel a little bit um, torn to mention it, to keep promoting it. And at the same time, it's gotten so little promotion, I feel like I have to do something. I have to at least mention that it's out there. Uh, as much as I want to just lean on, eh, you know, if things are good, you'll just find them. The world will share them, and hopefully that's the case. So if you did watch it, or if you do like this show, that's that's the least I could ask, or the most I could ask, I guess, is that you tell somebody that you liked it. And um, I'm happy to be done with it. It took a lot of the pandemic, and um, thanks to those of you who have watched it. Anyway, Big Nothingness can access it. YouTube, Vimeo, DavidHunsberger.com. And before we start, uh, Wills Landrum is the latest Patreon person to join back up. He got the free t-shirt. Congratulations, Wills, and thanks for supporting the show. And Maria Korotkik, I'm, I hope I'm saying that remotely close to how it's pronounced, uh, upped her pledge. And so thank you to Maria. And if you like the show and like that it's ad-free and would like to support it, it is made possible by contributions from listeners just like you, patreon.com slash spacecave, and uh, I appreciate it. Okay, um, one last order of business before we get to the conversation. This is from Yoichi Shiga. I've mentioned him a number of times as the Carbon Cowboy. If you haven't listened to those episodes, they're fantastic. Recorded in the basement of a hotel in San Francisco. And uh, he... Oh, his, he's, he's a good person to talk to about climate change, and I kept referencing this story about NASA without fully uh, explaining the details or even understanding them. And so he wrote and said, hey, just to clarify, um, you've mentioned the story a couple times, but I'm, to, I'm going to go all carbon cowboy on you for a second. I think the Facebook-linked NASA story you are referencing is measuring sun-induced chlorophyll fluorescence, or SIF, pronounced like Sith, but Sif. It is actually a pretty fascinating measurement, and then in parentheses, I published a paper using this data as part of my PhD, which allows us to see how much plants photosynthesize from space, which we couldn't do before. The glow, in quotes, 
satellites can see from space is a byproduct of photosynthesis. Essentially, if you think of plants photosynthesizing as an engine, this fluorescent glow, and then in parentheses, which is the infrared, is sort of like the residual heat that an engine puts off that scales with the engine's, then in parentheses, or plants' productivity. So we've all seen Top Gun. You know that haze? I think that's what he's referencing. That analogy may have gone too far. In any case, it's pretty cool. It also has a cool origin story. It wasn't a planned measurement, but a couple of scientists were able to extract the signal from a satellite that was sent up to space to measure ozone. It just so happened that this satellite had the spectral resolution to pick up this fluorescence signal and has now spawned a bunch of new science. There is still a debate on exactly what the signal is really representing. Parentheses, of course, scientists love debates. And I'm not an expert on the specifics, but just thought I'd chime in to set the record straight. That is very helpful. And if you have a correction or input or additional things, a lot of times I'm referencing stories where I'm like, "Eh, I think this was the general gist. I would love it if you write in and uh, add any additional info or corrections or just what Yuichi did. So hopefully that is helpful. And if you don't know that story, you can probably just Google it. I'll try to link it at thespacecave.com, but pings at thespacecave.com is the best place to go to message if you have something like that, or you just want to recommend a beer or an artist or a guest or a topic, anything you like, pings at thespacecave.com. And that is how we got to my guest this week from a good friend of the show and friend of mine, Gene Hospod, an animator who has worked on The Junk Show, One-Headed Beast, Big Nothingness. She's so talented, and she's a fan of science fiction literature, and she said, hey, you should get in touch with Meg Elison. I think she'd be a great guest on the show. We got in touch. We recorded it. It sounds like this. All right, we're, we're doing it. This is uh, courtesy of, I guess, our mutual friend. I would say my friend. I don't want to speak for you, but Jean Hospod, who is... Yeah, she's great. Yeah, a wonderful, very talented human being, and uh, she put us in touch, and... I I have to be honest. I did. I wasn't that familiar. I assume we were not familiar with one another. No, nope, not and, at all. And then I read uh, the book of the unnamed midwife. And looking on your website and how many things you've created, I suddenly was <laughs> like, "Oh, I'm nervous. I'm kind of nervous." <laughs> <laughs> and the so the world is full of midlist authors. Most of us are not famous. Many of us work quite hard. It's uh, it's not a surprise that you hadn't heard of me. But I love it. And it, it's also, I think we, the, the time we live in where you scroll endlessly through any kind of platform to watch something, mm-hmm. for ages we've been able to go into a library and then just look around and realize everyone here had a goal and then they achieved that to the level of getting it published and not like selling it on their own on Amazon. Right. So like the tears of that, of people that, I have a book idea, never do it. Then people that like, I wrote a first draft, I can't bring myself to look at it. Then the people that like, I submitted it, I got rejected. But then the, to me, the top tier where you have achieved is you got published. Like to me, that is success that you did it. It is. It's it's really easy to lose track of that as a professional when it becomes your job. It's no longer like your pie in the sky vision of what might be. It's literally something you need to do every year. And especially as you develop a group of professional colleagues who've also done it a bunch of times, it starts to seem really common and really easy and it's neither. So it is, it is good to remind yourself of when you first believed that and, and what the odds are, like you said, the, the number of people who will attempt to write a book, who will finish a book, who will edit a book, who will get an agent, who will get a publisher, it's actually quite a small percentage. That is what I would have even even looking at libraries and thinking, oh, so many people have done this. Maybe it's a lot compared to that library. But even if it's a million people compared to the total population of the planet, that's incredibly small. So I think you're in a very, very small like sliver of the population. And for some reason in my head, anyone that's published, especially more than one book, is like just shy of like J.K. Rowling numbers of like financial independence. And it's so far away from that. So far away from that. Uh, Most of us barely make a living, if you can even call it that. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I make enough to pay my rent, which is unusual. 
I, I have a lot of friends who post their royalty checks on Twitter and like, you know, I just got 53 <laughs> cents. Like it can be quite demoralizing. It is for most folks not a way to make a living. And I'm only able to live where I live because I have a spouse with a union job with real insurance. If I were on my own, I could do this from Biloxi, but I couldn't do it from Oakland. And you're being in Oakland, like I finished the whole book and then I noticed at the back it said you didn't finish high school, but then you graduated from Cal Berkeley. Yeah, so there's a lot in just in that. It was such a simple little snippet of here's a little bit about the author, but you know, normally it's they live in blah 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 with their two dogs and they're so and so like, eh, tells you nothing. Like I was I was really intrigued by reading that. I love telling people that I'm a high school dropout because Dropouts can go on to achieve quite a bit. It takes work, but there are more of us than you might think. So it is important to me to keep that in my bio for several reasons. I got my GED from the state of Oregon in 2005. And there were a lot of people in that room who needed it to move on in some way to get hireable or to get recruited by the US military. (laughs) And our test proctor was this wonderfully exact black woman with long purple fingernails who told us her story about getting her GED and then going on to study classical Greek and read. Yeah. So she was like, this is not necessarily a means to an end. This is not a way into a drive-through headset. Do not let this limit you. This is the next step. It was transformative for me to hear that from her. And even then it took me until 2012 to really get back into college. I was a community college student and then a transfer to UC Berkeley. So it is, I am proud that I got into and finished at Berkeley. I'm very proud to have come from the greatest public institution in the world. And I am also proud to have come to that from where I did. So I love including those pieces of information because there are people like me who need to hear it. And also because it was no small thing to do. No, not at all. And I would imagine on the other side of that coin, there are people who were at family gatherings in the Hamptons and they had their turtle, you know, whatever the collar of their sweater kind of up, but they knew like, my real friends don't see me this way. And I get to disappear into being an actual person. And they might be a little disappointed, like, yes, I know it says an Ivy League school. That's not me. I went on to, I'm good with my hands or I I became a veterinarian or I think there are plenty of those people, and I have several close friends that didn't graduate high school, and it really made me re-examine how I discuss, especially during this pandemic, because it's so easy to say, like, oh, these, oops, all these uneducated people, they won't listen to the, you know, the basic things being presented, and then I feel right. like, but that doesn't equate to intelligence. Just no. because this person has so many degrees we should be inclined to listen to them, but that doesn't automatically say they're better at life. They've achieved more. They have some some, like higher status among us. Of my friends who didn't graduate high school, the overwhelming majority, it was because they became parents when they were quite young and people become parents at that age because they don't have access to birth control because they don't have the kind of reproductive justice that keeps kids in school and because our school system is punitive to parents in a way that it doesn't need to be which are both just traps of poverty so when you judge a person for not having gathered greater education or not having the tools to evaluate frankly confusing information from an ongoing uh, government campaign about a global pandemic for the most part you're just judging poor people mm-hmm. I try to keep that in mind as infuriated as I've been over the last two years. Like those are the people that I come from. I know how their paranoia grows and I know what poor tools they're working with for evaluation. And it is almost a hundred percent. It is often the, the product of racism, structural and, and, uh, and societal racism, but also of poverty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of people preach the concept of empathy and maybe lost in there is understanding. It's easy to, for people to say, well, take a minute and think about what it's like without really understanding, genuinely saying, no, no, no. I know you think you understand how it might be for them, but... Let me tell you how it is. Yeah. yeah. And you really have, I don't know what I would call it as far as like a card that you could lay down on any table and be like, you can't really talk to me about this. I was writing essentially what would happen as far as misinformation there's a great little 
tiny detail in uh, the book of the unnamed midwife where there are banners over the freeway after the things have gone long beyond salvageable saying like, we're against the shutdown. We're against closing schools. We're against the quarantine. <laughs> and that was so weird to read and have to flip back and be like, wait, 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 wait. And this was written five years ago. Or I don't know when you wrote it compared to like when you published it. But this is definitively something that you had your eye on. And the, the number of things that you accurately touched on had to have come from that place of understanding this is how humans, this is how society will process these moments. It's partly from observation of how I see humans behave. Absolutely. I think this has been true more than once in my lifetime, even looking at the way people denied and and deliberately lied about the AIDS crisis helped inform the way I saw this. But also I did a great deal of research and I looked at the way uh, major cholera outbreaks have been handled in Haiti or the way the, the influenza outbreak in 1918 was handled in the United States, how many people were against quarantine or against masking or held unprovable, unscientific ideas about how it might be spread or what might be behind it, or how many times televangelists have tried to pin illness or or major problems in humanity on some aspect of our behavior that has nothing to do with it. This is this is just something people do. It is something we have always done. There is always a faction holding back the cause of collective reality. And it's it's been hellish to live through it. It's been beyond frightening to live through it. But I definitely knew it would have to be in any pandemic novel. It, I can't even really because uh, I think we all the notions or emotions that you just touched on are things that we all think we felt, but we're always kind of gauging those on like, but 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 I shouldn't because this person must have had it harder. I think we all kind of did that in a way of like this is really challenging, really difficult. But then for you to look through it through the lens of, and again, to go back to like the unnamed midwife, she has this really razor sharp ability to judge people's character, to see little subtle behavioral things. And it seems like like your general countenance is pretty mellow. We've known each other five minutes, but it's, yeah. I get the well, sense that impression. <laughs> yeah, you get done and you're just immediately hitting a punching bag, but... Uh, it seems like you could watch all this happen and it would churn inside to see it, but also maybe this calmness of that's just humans. This is exactly what I thought they would do. These these chimps are out there throwing their poop around and it, why would I expect them to do anything else? Right. I did. I wrote The Midwife as a more decisive person than I am and in many ways a more competent person than I am. And one of the reasons that I wanted to make her a registered nurse and a trained clinician is because those people are capable of making very cold game time decisions. They do a lot of thinking on their feet. You know, they're, they're titrating in their heads. They're doing calculus based on your weight and dosage of a drug and all of this in seconds without saying a word. And when I thought about who could survive something like this, who would be good not only at the difficult circumstances of basic survival, but also the necessity of surviving other people. I thought about people like her. So I wanted somebody who had enough skills, but not all the skills because competency porn is boring <laughs> and then throw her into the mix. I think you did such a great job of that because I always like when I'm reading a book and I, I think the author either is this person or really wants to be this person, or despises this person. Oh, those are fun, yeah. But I, but the middle one to me is the best because there's a part of you that's like, no way someone's like this. And not that she's perfect, but there are, in that moment, definitive skills where you're like, man, that's nice. Yeah. That's a really useful skill to have there. She has some really good ones, and you know, particularly the ability to render medical aid in a, a total breakdown of society. That person's going to be endlessly valuable not to be this person, but I read another book about like the collapse of society not too long before I started writing Midwife. And one of the main characters in that book is just like a guy with a regular job and his post pandemic post disaster partner is a registered nurse. And she does this big fainting fit in the middle of the book about how he's never going to need her the way that that she needs him and she needs a man to protect her and she can't get along alone in this world 
he has a type one diabetic daughter. (laughs) He needs her worse than he could possibly imagine. And it was so livid reading it that he's so undervalued the skills of a person like that in, you know, the attempt to rebuild human society. I was like, you know what? I can fix this. (laughs) Writing is the best revenge. That really was a motivation to just say, absolutely. that's great. Midwife was was primarily written because I love uh, post-apocalyptic science fiction. It's one of my favorite subgenres. I basically cleaned it out. If it was written in English about the aftermath of a a worldwide disaster since uh, Mary Shelley's Last Man on Earth, Mm -hmm. I read it. I think it's like 1862. I read all of it. I absolutely cleaned it out. I read the mid-50s nuclear disasters, the... uh, uh, stellar impact stories the mysterious plague the aliens did it the climate change ones i you name it and i i was deeply unhappy to discover how seldom the women in those stories are people Mm -hmm. they are a necessity they are a means to an end because we must repopulate the species they are mysteriously chaste they desire nothing for themselves (laughs) There are, of course, notable exceptions to this. Octavia Butler's work, Margaret Atwood's work, uh, P.D. James's work were huge influences on me. For the most part, half the story was missing. Yeah. And so the idea not only of an apocalypse where, you know, women had their own destinies, but also a gendered apocalypse, a specifically reproductive apocalypse, was inescapable for me. So the book came together because of other books I had read that pissed me off. (laughs) Was it because you would think that anyone doing that, like venturing into, man, I bet I have a unique take on, and then whatever it is, crocodiles. You start reading a bunch of stuff about crocodiles, and you're like, boy, they've covered it from every angle. There's yeah. the book as the crocodile, as the person who's hunting them, as the blade of grass. Everyone's talked about it from this. But when you see a glaring missing spot where, all you could stack them up i would guess and then see this tiny little stack next to it and be like how is this possible that's the work as far as i'm concerned the the work is reading enough books so that you can perceive the gaps between them and ask yourself am i am i being a poor librarian am i not finding this or does this book really not exist Mm -hmm. so when people say you know zombies are over or retold fairy tales are over or whatever convention is going out of style I think that's bad advice. I think there's a version of that story that hasn't been told, particularly if you're a person of color, particularly if you're a woman, that you can tell and it will be fresh and new. I mean, we're not running out of pandemic apocalypses by any stretch of the imagination, but the type that I wrote is still unusual. Yeah. And it is stamped into like the canon of all of it now. So hopefully someone reads in however many years and they go, oh, this... There's not this chasm. There's at least a little bit of aggregate in this huge gulf. Maybe it's still like. Not to shoot my own horn, but literally the reason I wanted to do this job was that so other writers would read my book and say, yes, this thing, this is our our niche of of queer reproductive post-pandemic fiction. And uh, Alison Stein's Road Out of Winter, which is uh, a climate fiction I'm not going to put words in her mouth and say that she was inspired by me, but I know that reading my book was part of her process and helped her create what she did. And it's a spectacular book. And uh, uh, Gretchen Felker Martin's Manhunt, which comes out next year, is maybe the gayest uh, post-pandemic apocalypse I've ever read. And Gretchen is trans and she writes about trans people and it is more daring than my book in every way and just as gritty, just as unbearable. It, It... her book is so good, I feel like I should have to curtsy to her on the street. So <laughs> there is more work like mine. I feel like I've contributed and that matters. And I'm so excited to see more work like mine. That I, What else do people want in life? When, when most people die, I would say almost down to a person, their right. bank account is not chiseled onto the tombstone. And no. yet we kind of live in this society where, what do you do? And that gets touched on in your book. What do you do? What do you do? Why and we you? never say, like, what excites you? What fuels your imagination? What makes you feel like being alive is worth your time? Right. And what you just said, that's so great to be like, yeah, this is, this enlivens me. That's what makes it worth my time. That's what I have wanted my whole life. I, 
I had this set of goals that I really wanted to achieve and I thought it would take longer. <laughs> I, I really wanted to be published. I really wanted my work to be recognized. I wanted to win something. I wanted to get fan mail. I wanted to hear from other writers that I had helped them figure out what they were trying to say. And all of that has aggregated in. Whoa. That's been the greatest thing. I mean, it's also disorienting and I have to choose new goals and I have to figure out who I want to be next. But the fact that all of that has come in has been just the best feeling. I never thought about this concept that eventually you have to accept castles. That when you, yeah. you, you like all these gophers that are popping out of the hole and you hit them all, there's still this thing. What else? What else? What you else go, you yeah. can't really be content. So you go, all right, I guess I want that castle over there. And then you start getting repetitive, like number of weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list. And then someone right. tops you and you're like, I would, on my next book, I'll top them right back. And then you suddenly you're maybe motivated for reasons. You still need reasons to be motivated, but maybe they're not your favorite. Like all the ones you listed seem like those would be your, your favorite. I try to choose goals that are under my control, frankly, because you can't control whether or not you become a bestseller or how much money you make. You can control whether or not you write a good book. Mm -hmm. Control whether or not you do a good job of existing in community with other authors. So yeah, I try to pick things that I can control and things that are literally achievable. And whatever happens beyond that is gravy, you know. And yeah, uh, you also oh, you have to do you have to develop kind of some kind of security with yourself because some of these things may never come your way and it's really difficult to constantly measure yourself against other writers when you're in a bad place it seems like everybody's getting a book deal everybody's getting a movie deal everybody's doing so much better than me everybody has an agent but me that voice never shuts up even mm -hmm. when you've been published everybody's deal was bigger everybody's agent is better everybody's movie deal is happening and yours isn't moving so you have to learn to make yourself happy to find ways to be content because there will be seasons in which nothing moves and I would, I would guess if you talk to someone that is maybe on that other end where ugh, they're making two of my books into movies and I was hoping to just relax all summer, but I got to fly to Greece and <laughs> like, stop oh, yeah. talking to me, stop complaining to me because that seems like a dream. But you might find that they're like, I miss being where you are. Right. I've noted that, so there is a movement in social media channels to create smaller and more select groups. It's like, you know, everybody from Twitter and then also there's a group chat and also there's a Slack channel and also there are spaces you can only get into when you are invited. Mm -hmm. And even within those spaces, I have noted the creation of tighter and tighter lists so that you have somewhere to go when you want to say, yes, I have a book deal, but <laughs> yes, my book got made into a movie, but they're making me fly to Greece. There have to be places where you can share your concerns and your frustrations and have it not be in front of a bunch of people who just read it as humble bragging or insensitivity because all they can think is, God, I wish I had a book deal. Yeah. You have to be really careful. The problems of success should only be shared with people as successful as you. It, it is terribly insensitive to do anything else. That's nice uh, to hear said because in comedy, like I would guess any medium that exists, and some people just have kind of a blind eye to it. And <laughs> I just have... I'll sit there. Oh, dang it. They're pushing back your third movie. That That's a bummer. Right. Just yeah. Oh, like... your Netflix special is not getting made till next year. Jeez. <laughs> I know. Going back, though, to the um, the community college a bit, or, or really, like, not finishing high school and not getting too personal as to, like, what led that's to okay. that. But maybe did you feel like an outsider? You know, now having this community and writing – I would guess there's a feeling, no matter how marginalized or difficult people's childhoods were, to have that as a group, people would say, oh, you know, like, you're, you're kind of in an elite group, writers. That is, there was, uh, my friend Kyle McGinn was on this show, and he does poetry, and he's like, people think of that as, like, the most elitist thing you can do. You make right. no money. It's like, it's the most yeah, humbling thing. All the poets thing. I know are, are super broke and have day jobs, and <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it I, is. It's an elite I, art form that's practiced by impoverished queers. Yeah. Is yeah. writing, you know, to go from, did you feel like an outsider? Did you feel like you never, I mean, your vocabulary, your diction, your, your, I would imagine that has always been there. Your ability with words and like love of reading. Those don't always translate to great students and or great writers. A lot of people 
driving a bus right now, not to diminish that, but they, yeah. they maybe never, they uh, just don't have the opportunity to show it off. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't mind talking about it at all. Uh, I left high school under circumstances of extreme poverty and uh, my parents abandoned me when I was a teenager. So I was working. I worked uh, at night in a pizza joint, washing, washing dishes. I started doing that when I was about 14. And then I got a job as an au pair because I didn't have anywhere to live. So I was doing live-in childcare for a family that I knew. And I was managing, but barely. I was working 60 or 70 hours a week for minimum wage. And uh, it is really difficult to stay in school under those circumstances. I also lived in a very rural community where the school was over 45 miles away. There just, there wasn't a way to maintain it. It was exhausting. And uh, my junior year, I, I lost it. So I, I stopped going. And, yeah. Yeah. And I had been a good student once upon a time. I have always been a reader, as you suggested. I was not a kid who fit in. So I always had a book in my hands because I didn't have any friends. I grew up military, so we moved around a lot. So there wasn't a lot of continuity and uh, I didn't have long-term friends. So I had books. And I, I read a lot and I wrote a lot and I knew from a very young age that that's what I wanted. This is really the only job I've ever wanted to have. So as much as I held those desires to my heart and as much as I was developing those skills, I did not have the educational outcome necessary to, to create success. And that's not to say that all writers have to go to college. We don't. There are plenty of talented people who come to it because of a natural felicity of language. But it is easier to get people to listen to you when you say, I went to Berkeley. Sure, yeah. So I worked from the time I was 14 until, well, I still work now. But I always had a job. So I was working my way through community college. I worked full time for a couple of home improvement retailers, again, for very low wages. And I took as many units as they would let me have in California community colleges, which at the time was 21 units a semester. I don't know if that's still the case. And community college was a great place to find myself. It gave me the opportunity to study widely and to try on new things and see what I was interested in. Uh, the school that I went to, which is called Mount San Jacinto Community College, has a, a full deaf studies program. Wow. So I got, I got to do five years of American Sign Language there, which was life-changing for me. It also introduced me to the field of linguistics. I got to study biotech engineering, which I had never done before. So like I got to breed uh, antibacterial resistant bacterial strains and <laughs> run my own PCR and uh, create DNA particulate. And that was not so much useful because I was going to be a scientist, but useful as a writer to know how those processes work and useful as an American so that when people describe scary things like genetically modified organisms, I can say, I've done that in a lab. I know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> and probably too, to just, I think everyone needs, everyone either walks around feeling like I'm pretty smart or going, ah, eh, I'm, I'm not so smart. I've been told my right. whole life. When you get in a class where you can see things work out and you understand them and you can start to be like, yeah, I don't think it really matters what, piece of paper is hanging on your wall no you know, it matters really, that you can believe in yourself yeah it's great to have that practical experience because you understand what your space is that you are pretty smart that you know how to do these processes and also that the world is wide mm -hmm. and there are many things that you'll never know so that was what community college gave me it gave me the understanding that the world was wide and that i was doing okay in it uh, that school also gave me my first opportunities to publish uh in poetry in fiction and in undergraduate research uh, there is uh, a thing in California called the Board of Governors Waiver, which allows students under a certain level of, of income to waive their entire tuition in a community college, with, without which I could not have gone. Mm -hmm. I was eligible for the Pell Grant and the Cal Grant, and I collected both. And without programs like that, people like me cannot go to school, no matter how smart we are. The, the assistance that was available to me, uh, courtesy of the taxpayers of the state of California, changed my life. And uh, this is probably the worst time to tell you I'm, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I was going to be like, I voted and then uh, joke around Ooh. about socialism. But the uh, I mean, I just don't see how people can hear these stories again and again of people succeeding because of a little help, because of some assistance. Be like, yeah, it. I'm still against it. You got to 
I always try to tell people because I feel like as a well-spoken white graduate of a California public university, I can talk to people who won't listen to someone else mm-hmm. who are not interested in listening to a black person's uh, experience or a disabled person's experience, but they will listen to me. And I can say that without the free lunch program, without Planned Parenthood, without the Cal Grant, without the blue and gold scholarship plan, which is how I paid my tuition at Berkeley and I still have loans, without all these things that you do with a frankly minuscule number of your tax dollars. Yeah. People like me drive your bus. There is no other option. Yeah. Right. I mean, Eva, you're someone that had a, a jump shot. That doesn't always get you out. You're someone that, you know, had the thing, oh, they have a good right cross or they have a good, you know, right. I think down that list is way with words. You know, that's not always like an escape the situation. So even yeah. when you have a little assistance or help so i know that i got lucky i know that i i had a lot of advantages and a lot of help and i know that i got lucky and i know a lot of people like me who didn't get out and i know very few people like me who did one of my best friends from the time we were in second grade he similarly to you uh and i won't get too much into his story and i i'd love to share it I, i should have asked him first i didn't realize it would come up but i don't think he would mind but also like He's since reconnected with his parents, but he had to like work in casinos. We're from Reno and he was emancipated at like 15 and stopped coming to school. There was this brief period where he like played sports and was part of regular school, but he would always drift in and out. He'd be living in a different town and he'd be back. And then when he got emancipated, he just worked at the casinos all the time. But he he went to like um, like a satellite school and I can still remember his... He was the valedictorian of that school, getting his degree there. And I can remember his speech and like, I think it was having a a feeling of community finally, but the accomplishment of like, I did this on my own. And he complains less than so many people I know that have so many more advantages. All the advantages, yeah. Yeah. So I, your story reminds me a lot of his where, you know, he, he had us, we stayed with him and, you know, meaning like inviting him to parties or, you know, no matter where he was in the world, we'd kind of find each other for birthdays and things like that. But I would guess the lonely, he read all the time. He wrote poetry. He was living with himself and his mind. And that can get pretty tenuous. Like how did you, with so few resources to just balance, how am I doing? Was it just pouring it into writing or how did you find a way to keep yourself sane? I did pour it into writing. It has always been a big part of my work, but for the first million words or however long it is when you start doing that your work is terrible (laughs) so the the output is not encouraging and you have to get through the parts where you're bad so uh but i also i had community i had really good friends i had a network of mostly poor and queer people that i went to school with and we pooled all of our resources we were each other's roommates we were each other's rides we would you know hold a single car in common between eight of us we would pool our money for a pizza or for a bunch of burritos we kept each other up all night for study sessions we shared books or we frankly pirated books i was a longtime textbook pirate and i have no regrets about that We shared our information, most importantly, uh, of what we learned in the system and how we learned to navigate it and how we survived. We never kept secrets. Uh, There are a lot of things about the public university system that are excellent, but it is a forbidding bureaucracy for people who have no familiarity with bureaucracies and who instinctively distrust bureaucracies. (laughs) So there are all kinds of pathways of paperwork and talking to the right counselor and showing up to the right info session that you just miss. The cracks in it are paper thin and they get, so if if any one of us found out about a scholarship or an advantage or a thing we could get into, we shared it. That was, that was the biggest and most important thing. Yeah. I, uh, I'm thinking about myself as an adult, and I, I guess I technically missed jury duty recently, which is something I want to do. Yeah, me too. And I'd, I've, I've gone a couple times, and I've gotten, uh, you know, oh, we don't need you this time. Yeah. There was another time, you know, mid-pandemic where I was like, I, there's no way. And then this most recent time I thought I could do it, I filled it in, but then I lost my stub. I don't know where it went. And so when I, they don't give you any alternative There probably is one, but looking around, I went online, I called a number, I'm dealing with this automated system, and then I just quit. I just, (laughs) like, I guess I'm not going. 
And it's imagine precise, but it's not user friendly. No. And if there's an element and that wasn't for me to get an education, that was for me to be somewhere they wanted me to be. Right. And I, and I gave up, but to be a teenager or young, you know, a young person and needing to jump through those kinds of hoops solo, you guys are right. really lucky that you had each other going, Oh no, I figured that one out. You got to go to the bottom of the page and there's this little thing in the footer, all those it's little things. Literally, It's always that, or like you have to go see this one guy and he's only in on Fridays and you have to wait in front of his office until he gets a, an opening in his appointments. Like it's, we needed this information so badly. And if you if you take how difficult these systems are to navigate and you add to that the fact that most of our parents did not go to college. So even if we have parents, we can't ask them. They don't have useful information. Our siblings did not go to college. Many of us uh, come from backgrounds where you don't interact with an institution unless you're getting arrested. So all of these seem very forbidding and very frankly frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, also, a lot of my friends have ADHD or another neuroatypicality that makes these systems difficult to navigate and also makes people less willing to help you because your affect is not what they're expecting. Or my friends who are people of color, same thing, because people assume that you don't know what you're talking about, that you're not in the right place, that you aren't necessarily there for legitimate reasons. So there's how forbidding it is and how forbidding it can be for no good reason. So mutual aid became everything to us. I love it. Did when so I acquired your book through the public library system, which I thought was so great. Like you're in it. You're in there's so nothing. I just it. think it's the most they they put their stamp on the you know, the the top, I guess. Not the binding. Is there a name for the top of the book? Uh the edge. Okay. They put it on the edge. So then that feels so legitimate because it means like there's many, many copies of this. And they stamped it and oh, it's not at this branch, you'll have to wait a couple of days, we'll deliver it. But that when your friends, when that group, I mean, hopefully you're still in contact and yeah, was there like some sort of, let's go grab a slice of pizza or what did you do? <laughs> to be like they sent me, I got like 20 author copies. Did you slice open that box and have a big party? What was there to like, that had to have been such a big culmination of all those little struggles and the one car and the eight people. I have tried to celebrate every time with my friends and the people closest to me because every single time it happens, it's a huge milestone. But that first time was maybe the biggest. So I threw myself a little book launch because my publisher is so small that they didn't throw me one. You know, there's no budget for that. So did they do anything? Did they send you like a card at least? Something to like. I think I got a nice Facebook message. My original publisher is very small. I, oh, okay. I didn't care. It was published. Yeah. So uh, I rented a warehouse space that had become kind of a de facto theater here in Oakland, which is a thing that happens in the Bay. And uh, it was the theme of the party was choose your own apocalypse. So people came dressed as different apocalypses. So like we had a Godzilla, we had Planet of the Apes. Uh, we had a lot of zombies. We had uh, a Pride and Prejudice in Zombies costume. And we served uh, like shitty dollar store wine and Twinkies and Slim Jims. Yeah. It's after the end of the world. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine dressed as Pandora and she brought a box of apocalypses that people could choose from if they did not have one of their own. <laughs> And I read from my book and I signed copies for people who wanted to buy it. And we made the biggest deal out of it we possibly could. Um, it wasn't until it ended up on the shortlist for the PKD that it became really anything. I mean, uh, an indie published science science fiction novel for the most part will sell like 45 copies and then disappear. Mm-hmm. And I got really lucky with my debut. Uh, the PKD list raised its profile and it got me a review in the Los Angeles review of books, which you could have knocked me over that day with just a little. (laughs) And all of a sudden it was something very different. And my friends, my good friends from those days uh, were seeing me differently as though I had not, you know, done a neat trick, but made it. Yeah. And the book got republished and I got a new publisher and I got my second book deal. And like when it really started rolling, it was, it was something incredible to share with them and also difficult to believe. The best. And I, <laughs> it really was. I think when you have your castles, I think you're going to be that character looking back. I mean, what could be cooler than everyone in funny costumes? Like that's every, 
my grandparents, every kid that is telling that story glowingly, lovingly, it's because it was tough. It's because it was, they came here with two nickels between them and they got it. They started this bread shop. It's always that it was, but they had love. You had that love there. You had everyone. That's such a perfectly, I'm from over the hill in Reno and there isn't that artsy kind of fun dynamic so san francisco to me was like looking over the sunset is over there so that's what was happening in that glow was like all this creativity and artsy that sort of thing oh there's a warehouse space that person's godzilla we're doing this that's just so i can't um, there are people that probably did graduate from ivy league schools and did get published and got put on lists and got to go do uh some sort of sabbatical writing in Greece keeps coming up. They're they're in Greece. They got that sure. sweet gig, yeah. and I'm, I would I would guess that they would trade some of that for like the camaraderie, the feeling of this. We're all celebrating this the same, and probably a lot of your friends showing up. Like I didn't even really have bus fare to get here, but I'll figure it out. I'll figure out how to get home. I had to come for Meg. This is amazing. I mean, we still we still check in with everybody. Like, do you have a ride home? Are you cool? Like. Mm-hmm. That is, that's a relationship we're always going to have, or, you know, we're the kind of friends who you can ask without embarrassment to, to borrow money or to, to back you up in some very pragmatic way. So hell yeah, we still do that. That's great. When I was reading the, you know, so the, and I won't give away too much. I'll probably put a little teaser at the beginning saying uh, there might be some spoilers in this, but the beginning, you know, kind of starting in San Francisco, the Bay area, um, when she encounters some members of the queer community, I remember as I was reading, I don't know anything about you. So I'm like, is this someone that's trying to like ingratiate or trying to pass themselves off in a way that's, you know, going to endear them to that community. And the way that interaction goes, I felt, I was like, I feel very confident that she knows that scene. And that was like a nice, it just diffused a little bit. You can feel in inauthenticity a little bit. And that was a nice opposite of that of like, okay, this checks out. I I didn't make the mistake of writing exactly people that I know into my book, but I definitely wrote the world that I know into my book. And like, I haven't seen a straight person in eight days. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. The, um, the leaving the community college and going to Berkeley I want to hear, like, was that a bit, was that you guys gathered around an envelope? In my head now, you guys are always together. You're like hunched over each other's shoulders going, open it, open it. And then like nervously, was it that kind of thing of, you guys, this is crazy. It's Cal Berkeley. This is one of the most prestigious universities in the world. Come on, just open it. So five of us lived together at the time. We were all going to community college together. And then four of us made the plan to move to NorCal together. Since we had a functional household, we knew we could back each other up in income. We knew we could back each other up as we finished our degrees. So we all applied to different schools. Um, My husband at the time was trying to get into a master's program. So he was looking at a couple up here, but what he did find was a job in Santa Cruz. So that happened first. He got accepted to the job. He's a librarian, by the way, which is a wonderful way to make a living without being too capitalist. Yeah. But that came through and he was like, okay, at least one of us has a job. We can start looking for apartments. So we collectively started looking for housing. And then one of my roommates had applied to SFSU. So we were waiting for him to get an SF state. And I was waiting to hear from Berkeley. Uh, College acceptances come back in order of prestige, basically. So I got accepted to a lot of places but uh, a handful of UCs first and a couple of out-of-state colleges. And I was waiting and I was waiting and I got accepted to an Ivy. I won't say which one, one of the ones that takes transfers. And I did the alumni interview because they want you to talk to somebody who knows the culture. What would you and- say, just to stop for a second though, was your, your, are you sending writing samples? Is it just your grades? Is it an essay that you had that you felt really strong about? Was all of that. So transfer students have to send their full transcripts. So they see your uh, ongoing GPA. My GPA was very high. My course load was ambitious. I was a member of my school's honors program. I had published and I wrote one hell of a transfer essay. (laughs) I'm really good at that. Um, They don't ask for supplemental material, although I had, I had good writing at the time. I had pieces I could have sent, but it's just not part of the process. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know, you can do a good job on your college entrance essay and it really does put them over the top if you're equal in every other way. 
So I did the alumni interview with the Ivy and the alumnus was very frank with me. And he was like, you're not going to like it here. You're not going to fit in. This is not for you. That's a bummer. I mean, it, maybe it was bummer. helpful, but damn it, it that sucks. Helpful. I knew I was going to hate hanging out with rich people. Like I, I knew that. And it was good for him to put it in such plain terms. Do you know I, the rapper gotta... Nas? Yeah. So there's a, a program now at Harvard that's meant yeah. to like turn an eye toward that dynamic but it's not yeah. just you're welcome here and also study these old white guys it's meant to like w- let's you're welcome make- here and also this is not for you right yeah. yeah and and there's a lot to bridging that gap and it sucks that they just said straight out like you won't like it we're not gonna make any effort to make it enjoyable to you in some way he saved me a lot of trouble honestly uh i had been to the berkeley campus i had loved it i had felt deeply that i belonged there and I knew that I wouldn't be the only first-generation student, that I, I wouldn't be uh, the only person who had come out of poverty. They had a healthy transfer population and a transfer student center and a lot of assistance. And so Berkeley was the last one to come in, even after uh, the Ivy, which was incredible to me. And all of my friends by then knew where they were going and had a plan, and I was absolutely dying i needed to know so bad so i think they still do send paper uh acceptances but mostly it's done by email now mm-hmm. so i was sitting in a waiting room actually at a hospital when the, the letter came through and i i really wanted to start screaming but i was worried <laughs> about the environment i was and i had to walk outside and start freaking out but i f- immediately hit the group text and i was like this is it i got in i got in like it was wow. one of the best days of my life i i posted this long facebook status in all caps like it was all I wanted I I was so very excited to end up at Cal and then I got to do great things there too I got to study with incredible scholars I got to learn Sanskrit which is a thing I'd never even seen before and I got to talk about great writers with my teachers in office hours I got to show them my creative work and get a feel for what they thought I could do with it Uh, I got to write for the Daily Cal, which is an independent newspaper in the city of Berkeley, run through the university. Uh, Life-changing, incredible. I spoke at my graduation. Uh, That was a (laughs) huge opportunity that I I wanted real badly, and I got it. And then I published my book almost immediately after I graduated. Like Every door seemed open to me through Berkeley. It made a huge difference in the way that people see me, and ultimately in the way that I saw myself. When you you say you finished, you know, published the book right after you kind of like stone skipping across the water, the end of, you know, you're feeling good about yourself. You're feeling motivated. You're on the campus. You're, you're, you've got your arms out and you're spinning around. There's leaves falling. And then when you get, when you leave that scene crunching through the grass and go into your, wherever you live, are, are you riding with the motivation of like, I'm happy. I like being here. And this pushes me. Or are you feeling like, some sense of guilt of like, well, I have to do something because I have to prove that I'm worth being here. What are the emotions going through or just a pure joy of like loving writing? It was a combination of those things. It was, like I said earlier, it was this driving need to correct what I saw as a deficiency in the subgenre. It was like, there are pieces of this that no one has talked about that I can do. So I had that idea fermenting in my brain for a long time. And then as I was going into finals at the end of my Berkeley career, I had the idea finally crystallize. I knew who the character was. I knew what would happen to her. It all came to me and it came to me at the worst possible time. (laughs) And I, I knew that if I started writing immediately, which is what I wanted because I do have a deep love of writing and the process of it does not feel like torture to me at all. I know it does to some people. But if I started writing then, I was not going to do well on my finals. I really needed to focus. (laughs) And as an English student, most of my finals were write a long essay under the gun. So I couldn't, I just couldn't spend the words elsewhere. I couldn't. That was a new experience for me. I typically sit down and write whatever's on my mind when it comes because, you know, God's knowing it'll leave you. So I got through my last final on a Friday afternoon. It was like a one o'clock test. And I walked out at like 2.30. I got out of there and I took the bus home to my apartment. And the idea was like, it was heartburn. It was this this surging acidic heat that I had to get out of me. So I sat down on my couch with my laptop that afternoon and I wrote the first 13 and a half thousand words. Good Lord. It's one of the best days I've ever had. <laughs> 13. 
I w- so I I know that in context of uh, I used to host a variety show called the Junk Show. Cool. R.I.P. the Junk Shows. So mm-hmm. fun. It was just a way to like get a bunch of artists together. The thing I loved, and when I would have writers on, they'd say, "What do you, What do you want me to to do?" And at first, I would say you know, like three pages, I would say minutes, I go, I, I don't know, like maybe seven to 10 minutes. And they'd go, okay, I, I think I have a piece that would do that. Over time, we figured out that's around like 1500 words. Yeah, it's a pretty substantial amount of like, who had a good day, I wrote 1500 words, and you wrote nearly 10 times that. That's wild. Wow. But it was because I had created this unnatural sense of mental constipation. Like I was so ready to go. Mm-hmm. It just it just spilled out. So the next thing that happened that helped was Berkeley at that time had a summer creative writing intensive uh, for six weeks. And I applied to it because I desperately wanted feedback on my work and I didn't know how to get it. And I got in and it was paid for by all the same programs that paid my tuition. And I was so excited to be part of it and i met writers from all over the world who had come to be part of this and and get their work evaluated and even there i i was somewhat of an oddity writing genre fiction because people tended to be literary fiction in that environment and the teachers were very encouraging and it trained me in how to workshop Mm -hmm. which was incredibly valuable, uh, basically Iowa method. And uh, we got really intimate with each other's work really quickly. We got to know each other and, you know, we had parties and we hung out and drank and, you know, all the usual stuff. But I also got the first group of notes on what was going to be my novel. Whoa. Yeah, both from my instructor who was professional and from my fellow students. And they frankly gave me some of the ideas that shaped that work and made it into what it was. So I, I had this accordion folder because everything was on paper of you know all these thick copies of my 14,000 word manuscript and I was lugging it around for weeks and I finally got to assimilate all of it and go through it. And that was that was a crucible for me to learn how writers help each other, how workshop works. So now I have a writer's group that meets every every week. And we are constantly looking at each other's work critically and kindly and helping each other become better and stay sharp. And I owe it to that program where I learned how to do it. So once I had all those pieces in hand and I was on my way to a novel, it was really just a matter of time. I, I happened to find a small publisher who I had submitted to before who was interested in the novel, uh, even though they're not typically a novel publisher. And they got it out as tiny as it was. It just needed to exist. Yeah. And, We're yeah. Gonna get on a, on a Philip K. Dick award list and then the L.A. book review. I mean, all those things are just because it just went out into the world. That, yeah. Putting out a book is really hard. It's like being in a, a cinder in hell. And <laughs> A very small percentage of writers get any kind of advertising budget, any kind of PR support, any kind of, you know, get this into Barnes and Noble. It'll be in your airport bookstore. Like that's basically reserved for known bestsellers. So uh, the fact that my book got noticed at all when there are so many voices shouting into nowhere, it absolutely floored me. I had no expectation of winning that award. It was just the coolest thing ever to be there. (laughs) I was the only author on that list who did, wasn't represented and didn't have like a major publishing deal. And yeah, that was, that was a hell of a weekend. <laughs> well, I want to hear more about, I feel like we've gotten fairly into it, but I, there's still so much more. Uh, if you're ever taking a little break, we can uh, attack it again. And I have, yeah, so many more uh questions and and then also the thing that we kind of talked about uh previous to this uh emailing so we'll take a little break and get into yeah, that uh, let's take five meg elison what a wonderful guest come back next week for part two what a life and re- someone you just instantly root for and if you haven't checked out her books go to meg elison.com e-l-i-s-o-n and she's as we talked about very prolific we get into even more of her life, um, some of the concepts involved in the book of the unnamed midwife. We also talk about, um, we discuss things like the kind of the concept of the sketch at the beginning of this episode that a lot of people went through with the pandemic, choosing whether to just kind of hang out and let it be or to fight, to kick your feet, to swim. And hopefully every day you're choosing to press ahead 
So that sketch obviously is a little bit uh, nihilistic or cynical. Uh, hopefully you're not choosing to just write it out in your, in your hatch or your vessel that you are genuinely trying to be part of the group that we're all a part of currently. We like having you here. I hope you keep making an effort. Thanks again to Gene. Thanks to Dan for putting together this show from the goodness of his heart down under in Australia, which I believe might be where Maria, uh, who upped her pledge on Patreon, also lives. And if we get to enough Patreons, or Patreons, patrons, get to enough uh, people helping out with Patreon, we can eventually start paying Dan. So I really appreciate it if you um, consider that. The show takes a certain amount of time. There's tech stuff. There's web hosting, purchasing music, etc., uh, all of that helps, and there are little hidden rewards that aren't even included in the descriptions. So, thanks to those of you who do. Thanks to Dan. Okay, let's get out of here. This is a song by Meta. It's called Pastel Concrete. I hope you like it. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave. Pastel Concrete, Boardwalk Beach, a condo.